welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you on this Thanksgiving day. Brianna, what do we have? <laughs> well, we have Teslin Figaro joining us to discuss how old is too old when it comes to the age of the president. And as you get ready to partake in Black Friday shopping, if you haven't started already, we're looking at the latest numbers and whether the U.S. is imminently close to a recession. But first, a new op-ed in The New York Times asked the question, is there a problem with Thanksgiving? According to the piece, Thanksgiving is a holiday to share gratitude. But for the last four years, most Americans report being plagued with political disputes. Uh, is this characteristic <laughs> of your Thanksgiving, Brianna? It's yours is just you and your mother, no. right? No, it's a lot of people. Oh, in fact, um, you're going to visit your mother. Yeah. Uh, historically, when we had it in New York, we have a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds, because everyone's always just transiting through New York, and my mother takes in stragglers. So it's a it's a very diverse group. It's an ideologically diverse group. Um, one year, Michael Moore showed up for reasons that were <laughs> kind of random <laughs> and hilarious. Um, but uh, there's not a ton of fighting. There, mm -hmm. There is a guest that regularly comes who supports Trump, and it was not of the demographics that you would expect of a Trump supporter. But apart from my stepfather sometimes getting a little uh, tense in those mm -hmm. conversations, I don't know. We're, we're, a, we're a very ideologically uh, open household. It's, mm -hmm. it's where, it's where nice. I get it from. What about you, Robbie? That's nice to hear. Um, I usually just spend Thanksgiving with my mom um, we, we, we get along, <laughs> so it's not, uh, it's not an issue. I guess if, if I were to spend it with a lot of extended family members, uh, um, you know, like aunts, uncles, cousins, grandma and, uh, grandma and grandpa, my, my, my mother's parents are very politically active, interested Fox News watchers. They uh, give me lots of feedback on my, on my views, so uh, we get into some political, well, agreements and arguments. Um, yeah, nothing like, but I like talking about politics. I mean, we do it for a living, so it's not, maybe for yeah, us it's not a, the exactly. idea of I, talking I about it. politics is not so off-putting because <laughs> right? we're like, deranged we're, people. We're the problem. <laughs> yes. we're, we're the problem at our Thanksgiving tables. Like, I do think that this whole discourse, which... This whole discourse is very weird. It, it's, it's very... It's disturbing. It's very, I'm a, a writer for an elite yes. magazine in New York City, but I 100%. came from Iowa or Minnesota or yes. West Virginia or somewhere else in the country, and I am uncomfortable going back to my roots. Me personally, I mean, obviously my, my family is, my immediate family in particular is very progressive, so that I never had those kind of tensions. But it does seem like a weird thing to me sometimes to be trying to externalize your own yeah. conflict with your family in this way um, that also seems to, to want to judge them without engaging with them directly. Right. You want to judge them and talk I mean, about it in a public sphere. that miserable for you, don't go. Don't I go. Just, just don't go. That's fine. Right. I, but I, also, like, this should be an opportunity, it seems to me. And I, I almost relish this because, you know, I love to talk to people who are uh, ideologically different than I am. Yes. You know, it's, it's what I do. I wish I had more opportunities to talk with people who couldn't just hang up the phone on me or leave or, you know, mm -hmm. block me on Twitter, mm -hmm. who are invested in me because we're family members, because I think that's such an amazing opportunity to work through rhetorical strategies and to see what flies and what doesn't fly, what ignites rather than calms, what breaks through. And for people, and like, I understand that families are, uh, are difficult and holidays are already have a lot of baggage around them. And I'm not saying that anybody has an obligation, but I do wish that sometimes people would see it more as an opportunity as opposed to a burden. Yeah. It's weird that they see it, it's almost like a like a badge of honor to feel yeah. so inconvenienced yeah. it's virtue by signaling. Thanksgiving. It is a kind of virtue signaling that you're exactly right. That type of progressive media writer just loves to revel in. I said something. It's specific about Thanksgiving too. I don't know if that's because it's it's often right after an election or something. Like yes. it's your first chance to vent to to yes. friends and family about what happened. Because there are other obviously other times of the year where you might. Gather I think it was the family. most family. Is I think that's the, the holiday where yeah. the most family members get together. Because mm. many people spend Christmas with just their immediate family. It's about the kids. Really? As opposed to, mm. yeah, Thanksgiving is the, is the biggest travel day of the year, right? Yeah, yeah I guess. I guess. Yeah. Gr growing up, we always did a big... Well, I guess we I guess we gathered for both. But Christmas was going to be everybody, the extended family, like step cousins, half cousins, mm -hmm. people once and twice removed. Whereas Thanksgiving might be, you know, my immediate family and just like aunts and uncles and grandparents or something. Hmm. But well, look, what, would you have any advice for people who are whatever yeah. we have to say about it, like it or not, are going to be confronting some ideological uh, enemies yeah. across the dinner table? I mean, I do. Uh, I think it would be. I think it's better for everyone, healthier for everyone, self-care, practicing <laughs> self-care, to not have politics invade every aspect of life. Mm -hmm. So, it, look, I, I think it can be, it would be maybe ideal to not 
if, if you're just going to scream at each other about politics, like, just don't do that. And now a lot, I probably all these the progressive writers say, well, we're not the aggressors here. You know, your my uncle shows up in a Trump hat and then I, what, what choice do I have right. but to roll my eyes and then start this whole feud? But okay, but do, do, do you that. want the left turkey leg, Robbie, or the right turkey leg? Oh, I want uh, what do <laughs> the I want? white meat or the dark meat. <laughs> I, I like both. I like the dark. Some people don't like the dark meat. I like the dark meat. That's insane. That is, I will say, you, a you prefer the light. Different. No, people. I absolutely prefer the dark meat. I don't think that this is like a subjective thing. But there are a lot of Most people, people who pay more the light for meat. the white. Yeah. That's insane. Is it racist? <laughs> it's not, no, it's not racist. But I do think that I like is, them both. It is not something I, that I experienced in many uh, black households. I'll say that. What's what, what's your favorite element of the Thanksgiving? Spread? I'm not a turkey eater. I my mom makes a roast, and okay. I prioritize the roast because there's always turkey left over. But the roast goes fast because it's delicious. And I am a big fan of macaroni and cheese, which my mother does not uh, believe in for generalized kind of okay, health those reasons. Those are some Thanksgiving so I, adjacent So I buy foods. it. I, I make the mac and cheese because otherwise we don't have mac and cheese. Okay. I want the stuffing. Love the stuffing. Not a stuffing. Want the person. stuffing. And I mostly want the, I want the turkey like leftover for turkey sandwiches, et cetera. Okay. Well, then I'll prefer the I, I prefer the the white meat for the leftover sandwiches. Day of, I'll have the dark meat. So, so, there so, we, there so we what can, I'm we hearing that. is that there we would be very um, simpatico. Yeah, it sounds like this would. Diners. Work out just fine. Look, if you want to hire Robbie and I to come and moderate your Thanksgiving, as you've heard, we're not going to... Uh, oh, we could be like those those anti-racism, <laughs> that, that deranged lady who has the anti-whiteness dinners or whatever. You I'm know not what I'm talking about. These, no. Sarah Rao. Oh, I, I, I know you know, you're Did I make about. up that name? You I, know who I'm. There's a, there's, I she has me blocked. Either. I can't find her. Yeah, okay. Yes. Well, look, we... We would love to it. come into your home It's premature for this us. year, but we can get something going and set up a website for next year if you think our services would be needed. Invite Brianna and Robbie into your home. <laughs> Feed us. Converse with us. Uh, all right. We will have a great show coming up for you right after this. Joe Biden turns 80 years old tomorrow. Happy birthday, Mr. President, but it's time for a younger generation to lead across the board. That was former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley on President Biden celebrating his 80th birthday over the weekend, making him the first octogenarian president in our history. It means also that if he were to be reelected for second term, he would be nearly 90 years old by the time he leaves office. So is he too old to lead? Mm, a recent Reuters Ipsos survey revealed that most Americans, 68 percent to be exact, think Biden might not be fit for the challenge of running again in two years, while nearly half— 49% of Americans feel the same about his likely opponent, Donald Trump. Trump would be 82 when he leaves office if he were to win in 2024. Here to dive into the question of whether it's time for the older generation to make room for fresh blood is Teslin Figaro, host of the Straight Shot No Chasers podcast. Welcome back, Teslin. Always great to be here. Thanks for having me. What do you think is going on here with Nikki Haley? Is just the Republican Party setting up some non-personal reasons why they're going to back DeSantis as opposed to mm. Trump in a couple of years? Yeah, it's not a non-personal reason. I think it's, it's quite personal, uh, even seeing that on the Democrat side. But, you know, I've always talked about the importance of new leadership. I have talked about the fact that uh, we can no longer wait on them to pass the torch. We must take it because they simply just don't want to pass it. But I am uh, optimistic about new leadership stepping down, even though I know uh, Hakeem Jeffries and the new leadership that they allegedly choose will be hell uh, for progressives. I do think it is important that uh, there is now a realization uh, that you just can't have, you know, great grandparents leading the country. And it's no disrespect, you know, to someone's age. I appreciate wisdom. But there is something called uh, people that are closest to the solution are closest to the problem. And so who better to talk about education than folks with school age children like myself, a 15 year old? Who better to talk about the housing crisis uh, than those who are actually trying to purchase a home or trying to you know, cover a mortgage? Who better to talk about, you know, what is going on in college than those who are coming straight out of college or in college? So when you talk about the problems as a whole, um, to be two or three generations removed uh, from the problem, it just doesn't make sense. The average person in Congress is in their 80s. You know, so I believe in uh, term limits. I've always talked about that. And I think it's important um, that you have new leadership uh, step forward. And, you know, what's so interesting, Bree, is they call younger leadership people in their 50s. 
So, right. so they're not even talking about, you know, in their 30s or 40s. To them, young leadership, Nikki Haley, I believe, is uh, 52 or 53. You know, I don't, don't want to misquote it, but they're, they, to them, new leadership is in their 50s, half a century old. Um, so we are far, uh, you know, removed uh, from actually having new leadership that is actually living uh, the problems that we talk about. Yeah, the average age of the people running our government in Congress, et cetera, the presidency has just gone way, way, way up over time. I mean, partly because people people didn't used to live that long or reliably live that long. Some people live that long. But on the average has gone up. And, uh, and I think they've accrued, the people in power have accrued more institutional power, have more staying power. So you have these leaders who can just stay in power uh, forever and ever and ever. And uh, you're right. It is a, it's an issue with letting new people come in and talk about issues that they know more about. You know, we're, I, I would add to that tech. We talk so much about, uh, about social media, about tech and privacy and data and surveillance, all things that young people have a just much more intuitive understanding and grasp of. And like people in their 80s have no idea. People in their 50s have no idea. People of our, TikTok, our have so. <laughs> no idea about some of this stuff. Right. Right. Well, look, Tesla, I like that point you made also about it not necessarily just being chronology, um, but that it's a kind of a closeness to these real world issues. And I wonder if some of the problem with Joe Biden is not just that he's old, but that he's been in Washington since he was, what, 30, 30 years old, approximately, when he first uh, got into Congress. Uh, you know, who do you see as a natural heir? on the Democrat side, because I think that part of what the problem is here for Democrats who might feel the same way, according to these polls, is that it's not exactly here clear who would fill in for him. Certainly Kamala Harris has her issues. Yeah, I don't, I mean, to be honest with you, I don't think that it's, the problem is not that the leadership is out there. We just don't see them. When you said, who do you see? How can you see when the same people are on the microphone all of the time? I'm not even talking about just in the politics, but even on social justice, you have the same leaders who are leading the same fight that they've been doing for over 50 years. And let's just be real about it. It's not even about them just living long. It's ego, Bree. This is mm -hmm. about ego power. And once you get uh, so bought by people, and what I mean when I say bought, I don't mean literally somebody's, you know, cashing you out. But once you owe favor after favor after favor, you never untangle yourself from that. Um, and it, it doesn't take long to be bought, if you will. And I know the left always talks about that new leadership that came in and allegedly sold out in the first 365 days. So it doesn't take long, you know, for somebody to, to, to cash you out. But when you look at just, you know, having to stay uh, over time because of your ego, because of your pride, because uh, these folks actually turn into celebrities in their own minds. Uh, this has a lot to do with it. And I've been complaining about this for a minute, not even just, again, in politics, but even on the social justice side. If you are not relating uh, to the, the common person of, of being you know, close to that experience of what it means you know, to actually have to wait tables or what does it mean to actually have to buy a house or what does it mean to raise a child or even be single uh, and trying to buy a home. You are just you're just not close enough uh, to the problem. So I think you're far removed from the solution. I do appreciate institutional knowledge. I do think institutional knowledge is important. I do think that, you know, having uh, a wealth of uh, background to be able to help, you know, a younger generation lead. But this is not the case with this breed. This is a case of ego, of not wanting to leave that position of power uh, and, and just holding on to it for simply no other reason uh, but selfish. While most Americans think Biden is not up to the task of serving as president again, according to a USA Ipsos poll, 71% of Democrats feel he can win if he runs, and their confidence in the president seems to have improved from his standing in August. Well, I suspect that's because uh, he kind of took home a win uh, during the election. So is it the case that as long as Biden can still deliver, you know, what, uh, why, there's going to be less of an argument to, uh, to change, certainly to change directions, to change personalities, when Biden can, despite people's problems with his age, uh, he, he got the party over the finish line here. Was that well, Biden or was that Dobbs? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, well, well when people are taking that poll, they're comparing him to Trump. You know, just to be honest about it, they're comparing him to would I go with Biden or would I go with Trump? So if people had to vote again and if they reluctantly had to vote for Biden, a lot of folks would just choose Biden over Trump. But let's be clear, uh, he didn't get to a win. Let me just go ahead and dispel that myth. I, I get it that historically, you know, most folks uh, are used to the, the current administration being in power. But let's be clear, we can argue all day about, oh, well, you know, at least he didn't lose by two touchdowns. The bottom line is they lost the House. They lost the game. 
game, period, end of discussion. And they still do not control the Senate. Joe Manchin controls the Senate, which is technically a Republican. So as far as I'm concerned, Republicans control the House and the Senate when we when we, when we we really look at it and who moves that power. So there was not, to me, a win. I don't understand what the celebration is all about. This, uh, the last administration led us into a insurrection. So the simple fact that you barely got over the finish line mm-hmm. from a, a party or a, a the leadership of the party, Trump, if you will, that literally stormed the Capitol, that's not a win. It's pathetic at best. It should have been a sweep. If the Democrats were all of the things that they say they were, why was it just a sweep? Why did the Republicans still win, still win the House? So Democrats, and this is why I'm an independent, they always do this. They celebrate things that are not, they live in this uh, fiction world, and they celebrate things that they shouldn't be celebrating instead of asking yourself, you know what, we barely got over the finish line, so maybe we need to do something different. And maybe that's what they're doing, uh, Bree. Maybe that's why Jim Clyburn, Nancy Pelosi, and all of them are saying, hey, you know what? It's time for us to step back because we really didn't win at, at the way we thought we would. I don't know if the new direction that they're going in is going to be a win for them, but I think they realize that we need to do something different. And Republicans are realizing that as well with Trump. They're falling off like flies. Mm-hmm. So this is the time that I, I believe that all Democrats and Republicans and independents should infiltrate both sides uh, because now I think both are very vulnerable in ways that they haven't been in recent history. Hmm. Teslin Figaro calling out, out the, the soft bigotry of political ex, low, low political expectations. Thank you as always for joining us. Always. Thank you. We'll have more rising for you right after this. The Department of Education has begun sending approval for relief to student loan forgiveness applicants. This comes after the Biden administration asked the Supreme Court to lift a lower court ruling that blocked the loan relief program. Biden has not said what relief it could provide to loan borrowers if the courts rule against the program. Joining us now to discuss is executive editor of The American Prospect, David Dane. Welcome, David. Thanks. So. How does it come into play if there is an adverse court ruling, um, if you know, we're at the, the phase where the government is no, notifying people that they could qualify for this forgiveness? I guess if, if, the, if the forgiveness is actually given, it's going to be tough to roll back. Maybe the federal government knows that. You know, what exactly is the, is the timeline here? Yeah, I think the, the, the mentality is to act quickly. If, if there is clearance, uh, all of this is is ready. Uh, millions of of uh, loan cancellations are ready to go. Uh, the moment that uh, the courts uh, clear this program, and of course, at, at this point, that's probably going to have to be through a Supreme Court ruling, or at least the Supreme Court saying, you know, we 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 decline to hear the case. Uh, that that's going to be the final resolution here, and. Uh, You know, I think it's uh, generally smart of the Biden administration to uh, get ready for that eventuality so that uh, the other there's another deadline here. Right. Uh, On January 1st, under under the current situation, this, of course, may change uh, uh, on January 1st. uh, uh, Students are going to have to start paying back their loans. And so they want to get ready uh, to cut the the 10,000 or 20,000, whatever people get out uh, and cancel in full some loans uh, that are you know under that number uh, so that on January 1st there's no confusion where somebody is eligible to have everything canceled but they also need to pay right so so that's the issue I think they want to get ahead of that situation David, this logic that the Biden administration needs to be able to act quickly lest there be some other efforts to obstruct legally is the exactly the logic that the debt collective advocates were putting out there prior to all of this, knowing that these legal challenges were going to come down the pike. And the question they were asking is, why did the Biden administration, anticipating this very eventuality, not just cancel student debt immediately? Immediately could have been a day one policy. And then to the extent that there needed to be some redistributional consequences, you feel like rich people who don't need their debt canceled get a windfall, simply tax it on the back end. Now, 
it feels a little like they're trying to, that they're validating that theory by saying we're going to be poised and ready to forgive debt, the, the debt forgiveness as soon as there's clearance. But what is the likelihood that they actually get clearance? We've had, uh, I've talked to a legal expert, uh, Jed Fordham at Fordham Law, who thinks that in a, in a non-ideological way, this could be a 9-0 decision against the Biden policy of the Supreme Court, simply because of the authority that he used for his executive hook, that being the COVID relief, the HEROES Act, and, and, and saying this is a COVID-era policy, which is something that the, the Supreme Court has already said it doesn't really take very kindly to as it, sh as it, as it um, uh, 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 invalidated uh, the, the eviction moratorium and some of the other uh, COVID-era policies. So what is the likelihood here that people are going to see relief? Well, the only thing that has been adjudicated at this point is the issue of standing, right? Um, and uh, standing means that you have actually had injury, you've been harmed, and you're able to sue in these cases. And my read of the two cases that have uh, you know, been given standing here is that they're effectively lawless. Uh, uh, in one case, uh, you have uh, uh, the Mohela, which is a student loan servicer, which uh, the injury uh, assumed here is that, you know, by, by canceling debt, uh, you reduce the amount of loans that they have available and therefore the revenue that they have. Mohela, in a letter to Representative Cory Bush, said they are not part of that lawsuit. Uh, the, the, the attorney general of the state of Missouri uh, made them a plaintiff on their behalf without telling them. And uh, the, the, the Fifth Circuit, uh, who, who adjudicated that, said, OK, yeah, yeah, so Mohela is a plaintiff. Uh, they didn't make any of the other states who were in that lawsuit a plaintiff. They said, you know, as long as we get one withstanding, then, then this case is valid. And they just went ahead and said, OK, Mohela is a plaintiff, even though they said publicly that they're not. Um, so the other case, uh, which is with a, a district court judge, uh, said that, uh, there's two. It's on uh, the, the the lawsuit is on behalf of two students who sued because they're not getting the full value, uh, twenty thousand uh, that others are getting, and they said uh, that uh, because they didn't get a notice and comment period to argue for their side of the case, that they have standing to sue, even though later in that very same lawsuit, the the judge said this particular uh, authority that the, the Justice Department is using or that the Education Department is using doesn't require a notice and comment period. So uh, th th these are ridiculous uh, justifications for standing and they, they should not hold up in a court that follows the law. Now, uh, are there other uh, uh, situations where you have standing? Uh, that you would get to the point that you're talking about, that Jed Shuttigerman has talked about, where the HEROES Act may be a, 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 a not a great uh, authority that you use, especially when there are other authorities available, like the Higher Education Act of 1965, maybe. But so far, there have been a lot of cases and nobody has shown standing, nobody has shown injury and the ability to legally sue here, except for these two edge cases that I talked about that, that are seemingly absurd if you look at them uh, on the face of the law. So, well, I mean, you uh, say they're absurd, but they were persuasive. It, it, I mean, so far to the Fifth Circuit. Um, I, I, just, I mean, I just, there are a lot of people who find absurd the idea that the federal government has the authority to do this, right? I mean, there's plenty sure. of arguments for the absurdities of this whole situation, which is not being done by uh, the process of passing a law that says we're changing the student loan, you know, uh, kind of regime. You can draw your own conclusions. I gave you the facts of, of what is being laid out and what is being argued in these cases. And the fact that you have a plaintiff that has been dragooned into a lawsuit uh, when they said they're not a party to the case. And then you have another lawsuit where uh, the, 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 plaint the plaintiff said, I didn't get the chance to comment, even though they, they under the law admitted by the judge, there is no notice and comment period. Uh, I, I think is ridiculous. I think personally it's absurd. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, you make the, theory the, about, but that's 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 you know just my read of the the the, the way these cases are going. And the counter argument is that if it's been accepted by this Eighth Circuit Court and this Texas Texas Court as legally 
flimsy as people might think that those uh, decisions are, ultimately, this is the court that we have. You People have made their commentary about the nature of the judges, whether they're biased, whether they're uh, just advancing their own conservative ideology. But that's the lay of the land. And so the question is, given that this is where we are and that there has been even this level of approval, this, le this level of success by these litigants who have been forum shopping. I mean, this is the game. The whole point yeah. is that they've been seeking ideologically friendly courts across the country and have found them now, um, that there is some risk that the policy would actually not be able to go through. And I think this is why exactly we're having this conversation about whether or not the moratorium is going to be extended. I think what people want to know is what the odds actually are. There's definitely some risk. Uh, I think that the Supreme Court, there's a better chance of them dealing with the merits of the case than dealing with these standing issues, which seem, you know, a little out there. Uh, however, they have to get through standing before you can get to the merits. So. Um, you know, it's it's a good question. We're definitely going to see the Supreme Court ar argue this. And you have six conservative justices on the Supreme Court that are uncomfortable with, uh, you know, uh, under the major questions doctrine and all these other things that they've put together. We saw the case with the EPA. Uh, they, they seem uncomfortable with uh, certain uh, impositions of executive power. So yes, is there a, a possibility that this is not uh, going to go through? Absolutely, and that's why a lot of student debt advocates are saying you have to extend the moratorium then, uh, because if you allow the, the court to, to block your initial vision and then say, oh, well, uh, in January, everybody pay up, uh, you know, that, that's going to be, you know, something that uh, politically is going to be really bad for, for millions and millions of people. Uh, so uh, that's why you have the Student Bar Protection Center and many, many other uh, 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 advocacy organizations saying you have to extend the moratorium. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, David. We'll definitely continue to follow this. Uh, those, those emails say people's inboxes. They're wondering if this means that there's something that's going to happen. Obviously, a lot of people turned out in midterms, young voters in particular, in part because of the, 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 the carrot that's being dangled of student debt relief. So we'll be tracking this one closely. Thanks again, David, for joining us. All right. Thanks a lot. We'll have more Rising for you right after this. Joe Biden's granddaughter, Naomi Biden, and daughter of Hunter Biden got married over the weekend. And some journalists are big mad over what they perceive to be a limitation of access to the event. This was a discussion recently on The View that caused some controversy. Let's take a listen. <laughs> so wh what do you make of this, Robbie? You know, Journalists have been all over the place, and not necessarily in an ideological way. Um, some people, some journalists are arguing um, that this is evidence of the closed nature of the Biden White House. Um, at Brennanator tweeting, if you're wondering why Trump got away with as much as he got away with, the White House press corps considers not being invited to Naomi Biden's wedding a scandal, saying that there's some asymmetry there between how people are being um uh, treated uh, some, you know, liberals, uh, Charlotte Clymer saying the Naomi Biden wedding controversy is so damn cringy. Honest to God, I feel secondhand embarrassment for journalists who somehow thought demanding access to her wedding and subsequently complaining about it publicly when denied would make them look reasonable. Yikes. Other people are arguing that because there was a Vogue spread, uh, that that basically invited the public in, and because it was at the White House, which is the People's House, that they should have been able to have some access if an elite fashion mag got access. What do you make of all of this? Yeah, I mean, the at the White House aspect of it does compel me a little bit. Look, I, I don't think this is the greatest or even a particularly large example of, like, you know, government mistreating or censoring or, or the media or, or lack of transparency. I, I think absolutely people can get a little bit out of hand with this. Uh, that said, I no, I, I still think it's journalists' job to try to get access to an event. I know it's a, it's a, you can't say it's a private ceremony when it's at, it's at the White House. Like, it is their job to try to get access to the goings-on at the White House. I mean, this could be relevant to some inquiry in some way, and Hunter Biden being a kind of person of interest. Not that I don't think Naomi Biden, you know, deserves privacy, sure. She's not a government figure. That's fine. But I don't begrudge journalists trying to get better access to it at all, given really just given where it took place. And I found, you know, Whoopi kind of doing some rah-rah cheering for the administration in, in that clip. And also then, like, 
getting mad at journalists for not covering all the good stuff Biden is doing, which that's always the weirdest. And you just come out sounding a little bit like propagandistic when you're like, how dare journalists mm-hmm. don't cover the good things the government does? That's for me, at least that's sorry, Charlotte Clymer. That for me is always the cringiest thing you can do is be like, oh, why aren't they talking about how good the government is? Well, that's the Democrats' job, right? And Democrats have been famously bad at selling their own accomplishments to the American public. But look, I I would agree that there there does seem to be something to the idea that it being at the White House invites some scrutiny, although I I obviously don't think that just because uh, you get married at... And it should be noted that uh, Naomi Biden and her now husband were living at the White House, I think, for the last few months, um, you know, while their, I guess, their lease was up and they moved in with Biden. So it was their home. You know, you can have thoughts and feelings about whether or not the White House should be used in that way. But, you know, people move in with their grandparents and it doesn't necessarily mean that the the entire public should be able to, to have a perspective. But I will say the reaction from the press wasn't just, gosh, I wish I could have this scoop. Gosh, I wish I could have been there to take some pictures or, or write a story. It, it, it got a little histrionic. This is from um, Ashley Parker. She says, I spent four years covering the Trump White House and two years covering the Biden White House. What's fascinating is that they both lie, albeit in very different ways. Trump team was shameless, whereas Biden team is too cute by half. And Matt Iglesias quote tweeted this thing. You think this is going to be about the CIA staging a coup or something, but it's actually a complaint that Vogue, rather than the White House press corps, was given access to Naomi Biden's wedding. So it does it it does seem it does seem like people have lost their minds a little bit in terms of like the proportionality and the scale of what's happened here. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. They've lost their minds a little bit. Uh, although, again, the the it's good if the media is going to overdo this one way or the other. It's good to overdo it in the direction of demanding more transparency and kind of being outraged about not getting access to events. Right. We, we don't we don't want them to overdo it in the other way where they're just kind of like gleefully cheering everything the government does or being like, oh, it's fine that they're not going to let us in or show us or tell us anything. That's fine. Uh, so I, I'm not I'm not like so mad about it. But, yeah, I, 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 agree, I agree with you. I think uh, I think it was fine to let. Uh, let her her have the wedding. I, I liked uh, Joy Behar stealing my one of my favorite anecdotes for the only president <laughs> to get married uh, in the White House, Grover Cleveland. That was a, a trivia question I deployed <laughs> many a time this week. Um, it's true. I can vouch for that. <laughs> yes, I deployed it on you. I deployed it on you. <laughs> <laughs> look, and, and, and look, I, I do think that it's probably the case that Vogue wanted it exclusive, right? So you can you can question kind of the value of saying, you know, I... I desire to be on the front of Vogue in my wedding dress. And for that reason, I'm going to sidestep this more kind of egalitarian outlet. Um, I I can see why some people might be frustrated with that. I also don't begrudge a young woman in a pretty dress for wanting to be on the cover of Vogue on that level. She's not a politician. I don't, you know, I'm not really invested in her values and morals in that way. And that just seems like, hey, uh, a, a personal choice that the, the White House press corps is just going to have to cope through. <laughs> they need a strong dose of copium. I agree with you. <laughs> Prescribing lots of copium. Take it three times a day. <laughs> All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. The media industry is preparing for layoffs. According to reporting by Axios, more than 3,000 jobs have been cut this year and more are coming. Just last week, the new head of CNN, Chris Licht, warned staff that there could be more layoffs starting next month. Meanwhile, questions surround the new direction of CNN. According to the Financial Times, CEO Chris Licht plans to take the media outlet back to its roots. According to Warner Chief Executive David Zaslov, Licht wants the new CNN to be fighting for journalism first. Licht told the Financial Times, quote, One of the biggest misconceptions about my vision is that I want to be vanilla that I want to be centrist. That's BS. You have to be compelling. You have to have edge. In many cases, you take a side. Sometimes you just point out uncomfortable questions, but either way, you don't see it through a lens of left Mm. or right. Now, not seeing it through a lens of left or right, you know, (laughs) is he he saying that he is basically tacitly admitting that he's a centrist? Or do you think he has some understanding of the kind of top down dynamics that I think make a lot of shows like ours and some of the the more populist right and populist left shows so appealing to people? 
Yeah, I don't know if he if he gets it. I mean, he's he's correct that CNN needed some you know course correction, I guess, to attract a larger audience from just this very you know kind of one sided or, or perceived to be very uh, sort of progressive in an anti-Trump kind of way without being really particularly left that was not capturing um, a lot of viewers. I mean, I, I try to say, even when I describe our own project, right, we are, we're, not, we're not squishy, centrist, moderate or something. We have very strong views, but because we feature a range of strong views from you, know, you being a very much a person of the left to some of the other hosts that have you know, different perspectives on things. And we have, I, I think we have balance overall, but that's, that's like on the average. That's not because everyone is a balanced, moderate, middle of the road person. In fact, you know, very, very few people feel that way. I mean, maybe, I, maybe on some issues, they, people feel differently, but uh, the bring it, when you bring everyone together, you're representing the range of strong views that the people feel and uh, that that makes for compelling television. He was kind of saying that, and then he veered off when he said, well, it's not going to be left or right, but you need people on the left and you need people on the right if you're going to talk about things that matter to the American people, because a lot of the American people are on the left or are on the right, or are on the left or the right on some issues and not others, because we're scrambling what all these categories mean. It, you know, What does it even mean to be on the right on economics now? It means something completely different than it meant 20 years ago, and it's, it's not even clear. Um, I don't know if I fall yeah. on the right on some of these things. Uh, it, it's not. And then on other things, I absolutely Absolutely do. So it's it's important to, to talk it through. But it, maybe that he's even thinking in those terms is uh, I don't know if it's a good sign or not. Maybe it's a bad sign. Yeah, like I, I will say that I was enjoying their election midterm election coverage as I was flipping through the channels. Um, but the the thing that I think that most of these mainstream uh, stations still don't get is that their version of ideological diversity is bringing on a bunch of never Trump Republican right. uh, Michael Steele, uh, you know, um, Liz Cheney types. Uh, to fill their panels and to bring uh, a bunch of never, never Bernie liberals on, um, who consider Hakeem Jeffries to be a true progressive and who will never mount any real criticism of the Democratic Party. And what you realize very quickly is that those people have the exact same worldview. You see this on the View, right, with um, Navarro and Whoopi Goldberg having ostensibly no disagreement between yeah. them, and occasionally you'll get, um, you know, Alyssa saying something from the right. She's probably got the most distinctive political view on by that far. panel by by far but all of all of these you know the liberals are very much i mean and i include a navarro and a navarro and with the liberals because it's basically this very centrist moderate world world view and even with someone like aoc who you would think that maybe this panel would be uh friendly toward uh just even just for mere identity politics reasons even she catches some heat when she goes on the view because people like Whoopi goldberg find her politics to be so anathema so if these folks want to turn it around, I strongly suggest they start getting some real Republicans on who actually still like and support Trump and who like Ron DeSantis um, and some leftists who are willing to be truthful about, you know, good faith critiques of the Democratic Party. Yeah, absolutely. What do you make of broader cuts to the media kind of industry? My, my sense is the media is just oversaturated. Like, there are so many media organizations. There are so many... Uh, and new ones appear all the time, thinking like, oh, yeah, well, we'll it's a good idea to, to do more competing for people's time and attention, et cetera. Like, there's, there, there's just a glut of media. So it, I'm not, uh, it doesn't make me, I don't, I don't think people will be deprived necessarily of, of information they need or have a shortage of reporting or takes or discussion if, uh, you know, if some people, um, uh, although it's, it's never happy, it's never fun when people lose their jobs. But, uh, but we, we are in an oversaturated period of time, I think. Well, you know, I think corporate news might be oversaturated, but the problem, I, as I see it, is that local news has been decimated. And those jobs being lost over the last 20 or 30 years is what has led to the um, the kind of uh, one-note unification of voice in the news media. You've seen probably that kind of haunting a demonstration of all the Sinclair channels that have bought up all of these small media companies, local media companies, and completely subsumed them, of dozens and dozens of hosts using the exact same scripts and saying the exact same things all across the country. And you don't get deep local reporting. You don't get people in their communities actually understanding what's happening at the local level, which has so much more impact on their lives than what some random, you know, Congress member in California is up to. And, uh, you know, we, the pub a lot of public funding that used to 
these things is gone. The advertising model in Facebook has driven a lot of these smaller institutions out of business. And it's it's a real problem because to the extent that there's misinformation, to the extent that, that we all just got fooled right about the AP report um, that falsely reported that Russian bombs, it was Russian missiles that had hit um, uh, Poland. All of these things are part and parcel of the antitrust problem that is a few media moguls buying up all these institutions. And now we have you know, billionaire after billionaire after billionaire getting in the fray and having this other layer of conversation about the extent to which their ideology is driving coverage from um, Twitter to the Washington Post to the Intercept. And I think that that is a real problem. More independent news is definitely needed. Mm. It would be great to refocus people's attention a little bit locally in terms of the news. Is Part of the reason the, the battle, the, the conversation taking place, I think, seems so bitter um, is because you know we're all having like conversations about everything going on all at once, even when it doesn't necessarily matter to everyone. Like what you know, what a, when when there's a controversy or, controversy or something that's local, then it it's becomes national news. Everybody talks about it. No, maybe it only concerns those people in the community, and then it gets distorted because it matters to those people in the community who have more interest and knowledge about it. But we're all we're all discussing it. Um, I do think though, local news really failed to innovate as the transition to kind of online news took place. Like, if you visit a local news website, it is so hard to tell. Um, it's hard. Like, the videos don't load right. Like, they didn't adapt YouTube. They didn't adapt all these kinds of things that I, I made them made them harder to... That just They just don't work online the way they worked on TV or the way they work on radio, um, which is a, well, which was a real problem. There's, there's economies of scale. I, I'm not... I don't dispute that I'm sure some people handle it better than others and that, you know, there's some control that some folks have over their fate. But what, what happened with Facebook and what happened to the advertising model is that at the time when you needed to be making investments in, in pivoting to video or pivoting to the internet or whatever, they lost all of their funding. They couldn't keep reporters on staff. And the thing that should be the most important thing, like driving actual substantive deep reporting, much less worry about how to compete with uh, you know, Goliaths like yeah. uh, Facebook and the Washington Post and New York Times that could also pay to have their their content privileged on these app on these apps, right? So it, it was it was a battle they were never ever going to win. And when some billionaire comes along and is willing to buy up your your franchise, that is for so many outlets the only the only way out. And you know, other countries get around this by having more robust uh, public funding. Um, we we haven't moved in that model. Uh, we haven't moved in that direction. And there there are real consequences for people's ability to be informed in their voting choices in their in their localities. Well, good discussion. We'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. We're learning that Jeffrey Epstein reportedly was trying to set Prince Andrew up to extort the queen. That's according to financial advisor John Bryan, who also dated the Prince, uh, Prince Andrew's ex-wife, Sarah Ferguson. Epstein blackmailed rich men and made them pay to avoid scandal, is what he's claiming. He said, quote, I believe Andrew is innocent. If he was genuinely involved, as alleged, Epstein would have used that to try and bribe the queen into paying millions to protect her family. Well, Prince Andrew has denied any wrongdoing. He settled a lawsuit with Virginia Griffre, one of Epstein's victims, back in March of this year. Robbie, how do we know, uh, or how how does you know um, uh, the, uh, John Bryan know that Epstein didn't try to bribe the Queen? We don't, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, are there some kind of disclosures of yeah. the royal pocketbook that would make it very obvious if there were, were any money spent in a way that it shouldn't have been? Are we so convinced that the, there aren't other ways to make? Because I'm just saying, I'm not the 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 posture here of the various actors is very odd. You have, you know, someone who had a relationship with the you know the the person involved coming to his defense in a way that seems like sort of credible, but also this accusation that, you know, you can't be bribed usually uh, unless there's some evidence. It doesn't mean you absolutely did the thing that you're being accused of, unless there's some um, evidence that would uh, reflect poorly on you. So it, I don't know. It is, yeah, it, I don't it, buy it, this guy's defense of posture. Prince Andrew at all because, I mean, what if, what if, like, what what kind of happened is that Prince Andrew has taken a lot of heat for this, so maybe he just, they were like, no, we're not going to pay you, or you know, they just tried to ignore Epstein, and then this information kind of leaked out, right? That that like that doesn't mean there was nothing improper. Like, that's kind of what happened. 
So I don't, I, I don't buy that as, as like, oh, Prince Andrew is necessarily innocent. Um, I mean, like he, he, he paid for his public association with Epstein, you know, based on some information about that. So that could just be, maybe, maybe they didn't pay Epstein and then this happened, or it, like that doesn't necessarily mean that he's innocent. So I, I don't get that part of it necessarily. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, meanwhile, uh, Virginia Giffray's lawsuit against Alan Dershowitz has been dismissed, according to the New York Times. Giffray, who accused the law professor of sexually assaulting her when she was a teenager, now says she may have made a mistake. And so I wanted to bring this up because we, um, we interviewed Alan Dershowitz. It was me and Ryan Grimm and uh, Emily Jashinsky a few weeks ago. And I would describe it as pre- it was pretty aggressive questioning, frankly. So mm-hmm. uh, you know, I want to set the record straight with all uh, and and with all you know, all fairness to Alan Dershowitz, and he you know he took the he took the questions, he answered all of them, he was happy to, to stay and have that interview go as long as it as it could and answer everything he was asked. But I think a lot of people had questions about his involvement with with Epstein based on that. So it's importantly, I think I want to point out here. So Virginia Gouffre, who has previously accused him of sexual misconduct with respect to in relation to the Epstein stuff, she's saying pretty unequivocally that she thinks she misremembered that and and she, you know, is not standing by um, comments, statements she made about Alan Dershowitz. So I think in in all fairness to him, it it is important to publicize, um, given how, how critical we were of him, that she says... Um, that she is walking that back um, as as an outcome to their 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 uh, litigation. What do you to what do you attribute the turnaround? And here's why I'm asking: mm-hmm. there can be incentives on both sides to make an accusation that's false and to retract an accusation that's real. So I have no idea what happened. The only people who know what happened are uh, Virginia, um, you know and um, Dershowitz. Mm-hmm. However, we have seen certain instances which have raised the public eye of um, Donald Trump's first wife making accusations for years, writing about it in her book, and then retracting it when Donald Trump ran for president. And there were people who said the implication was that he basically paid her off so that he wouldn't have to deal with those kinds of allegations in the context of his own presidential run when he was getting all these other accusations from other women as well. You know, and so I, you know, I, I have, I'm not, I wouldn't weigh in either way, because again, None of us have personal knowledge of it, but I don't think it's necessary, necessarily exculpatory when a victim, uh, an alleged victim, retracts. Yeah, but in, in the Trump case, I mean, it could be either way. It could be she exaggerated those claims in the context of a divorce settlement where tons and tons sure. and tons of money was at stake, right? So we don't, we just, sure. like, we, we just, we don't know whether it was, whether that, that was where the exaggeration was taking place or like, yeah, I, I, right, I totally hear you. She, or she, or maybe it was true and then she had incentive to walk it back. Um, look, but I, I, I think, frankly, I think like members of the public, journalists, if, if, the, if the accuser recants in that strong language like she has here and says, no, I think I misremembered this. I, I, I'm no longer making this accusation. I, I think... From a due process standpoint, from a you know presumption of innocence standpoint, I think the responsible thing to do is is then t- is is to accept what she is saying now as that that should be that that's the word on on what happened. I, I don't see hmm. it, 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 that feels right. Maybe that's unsatisfying unsatisfying, but that feels like the most fair thing. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. No, it, so, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, a lawsuit between Dershowitz and CNN is set to take place in May of 2023. In his lawsuit, Dershowitz accuses CNN of defamation, alleging that the network repeatedly aired a, quote, deceptively edited clip of his defense of former President Trump during the first impeachment trial. So, you know, we'll have to see about that. You know, another one of those kind of high profile defamation lawsuits against a mainstream media company, which often have kind of, you know, fraught issues because, um, opinion statements are protected. It, you know, it has to be an assertion of fact. It has to be, there has to be actual malice involved, et cetera, et cetera, and so on and so forth. But th- that, again, I don't know. I haven't looked closely enough. Maybe they edited him in such a way that it is clearly defamatory and malicious, but um, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, look, the, the, as the news gets more opinion-based and, you know, the, ap- the public appetite seems to be for 
skewed media coverage on both sides of the aisle. People want to take uh, the most popular shows are shows like Tucker Carlson, where it's not just straight news as it is opinion. I wonder if we're going to see an increasing number of these defamation suits because it does seem to be perhaps the only way to keep folks in line. My concern, however, is then, you know, who has the resources to actually sue and get their record corrected about them and who doesn't? And are we going to see justice and corrected records for people who are affluent while, you know, regular people are are routinely smeared um, mm-hmm. uh, by these kinds of institutions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and a higher profile question. people on Twitter and social media and things like that. You see yeah. it all the time. Yeah, although so, you know, sometimes we we see examples of people who were not ho- high profile people until the media came for them, and then they, you know, those, mm. think like the Covington kids or set, you know, mm. people of that of that nature. So, um, mm-hmm. and in a lot of these cases, it, you know, there ends up being some kind of settlement, which doesn't necessarily mean that it was defamation or would have proved to be defamation, but it was more convenient for the company and for the person, you know, to reach some agreement where they don't even get to that point. So we will have to see. We'll have more rising right after this. President Joe Biden is pushing for immediate action on the Respect for Marriage Act. Monday, the commander-in-chief tweeted that I urge Congress to quickly send this bill to my desk, where I will promptly sign it into law. The full Senate is expected to vote on the legislation after the Thanksgiving holiday. Cleared a procedural vote last week with the support of 12 Republican senators. The House passed its version of the bill over the summer. Now, if it becomes law, the legislation would federally recognize same-sex marriage and provide legal protection for interracial marriages. Joining us now to get into the details of the bill and what it would mean if the Supreme Court overturned Obergefell v. Hodges is Dean of Berkeley Law, Erwin Chemerinsky. Welcome, Dean. Good morning. Good to talk with you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So this did clear the the procedural vote in the Senate with um, significant Republican support. I believe 12 Republicans voting for it. So should should indeed is expected to pass and then be signed. Um, what what will this uh, this law accomplish in the event of some I, I think unlikely, but people are concerned about it because of what of, of what Justice Thomas said in uh, in his. Uh, in his recent opinion, uh, you know, what, what is being protected here? I think it would do three things. First, it would explicitly repeal the Defense of Marriage Act, a law adopted during the Clinton administration. Second, it would say, for purposes of all federal laws and benefits, marriage includes that between same-sex couples. And third, it would say that states have to recognize marriages that are same-sex or interracial from other states. It's curious. I think some people are of uh, are asking questions about why it is that um, you know abortion rights Roe hadn't been codified or Casey hadn't been codified over the last um, you know 50 years. They are asking questions about why it is now only that uh, Democrats are acting on these things after having kind of dangled the concerns about Republican um, interfering with some of these rights to win elections over time. Are there any actual structural strategic you know uh, barriers to Democrats having codified? not just this, but other kinds of um, rights protections before this time. Congress could have passed this law at any time. Congress could pass a national law to protect abortion rights or a national law to outlaw abortion. I think the answer to your question is simply politics. Mm. At this time, same-sex marriage isn't the divisive issue that it used to be, but abortion remains that kind of a divisive issue. I think the opposition, some of the opposition to uh, codifying um, gay marriage vis-a-vis this bill uh, on the right is, is some of it is, is actually not strictly, or they're saying it's not strictly objection to gay marriage, but concern about religious freedom or concern about um, tax-exempt status for churches, for, um, uh, for businesses getting in trouble for not recognizing same-sex mar- marriages, maybe uh, anti-gay discrimination, all that kind of... That's what I'm hearing from conservatives, at least. Um, what do you make of that, those issues with the bill? This would have nothing to do with tax and status for any churches. In terms of businesses, already the Supreme Court has interpreted federal employment discrimination law to prohibit discrimination against gay, lesbian, and transgender individuals. This wouldn't change that at all. This simply would say, for purposes of federal law and federal benefits, same-sex couples that are married are treated the same way as opposite-sex couples. And it would say 
that every state has to recognize a same-sex marriage from another state. It goes no further than that. Yeah, so to that point, an Associated Press fact check uh, looked into claims that the Respect for Marriage Act would uh, allow the IRS to revoke the tax-exempt status of churches and that only support uh, marriages between a man and a woman. And according to their reporting, quote, nothing in the legislation would allow churches to be denied tax-exempt status or other organizations to be sued for their stance on marriage. Um, Dean, why are we seeing confusion here, uh, despite what seems to be clear-cut? There's still in some circles is opposition to same-sex marriage. So those who oppose same-sex marriage don't want to see this bill passed, but they are making an inaccurate claim. As the AP fact check found, as I said a moment ago, nothing in this bill would in any way revoke anyone's tax and status. Nothing would take away anyone's religious freedom. It would simply say that federal law recognizes same-sex marriages the same way it recognizes opposite marriages. Well, let me let me ask you this. I mean, some conservatives have said uh, post Dobbs that the kind of liberal concern about what it potentially could mean for uh, same-sex marriage or um, interracial marriage was overblown, and that you know Thomas's language was being kind of exaggerated by liberals to create the perception of a, of, of a threat and basically make uh, you know gin up support for Democrats during election seasons. What do you make of the parsing of that language? Is there does it indicate to you that the court is really coming from for some of these other privacy rights and not intending to stop at abortion? Let's start with Justice Thomas' language. It wasn't exaggerated at all. Justice Thomas said, now that we've overruled Roe v. Wade, we should overrule Griswold versus Connecticut, the 1965 decision that says the right to purchase and use contraceptives, Lawrence versus Texas, the 2003 decision that said that states cannot prohibit private, consensual, adult, same-sex sexual activity, and Obergefell versus Hodges, the 2015 case that said there's a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. In fact, Justice Alito's majority opinion in Dobbs said that the only rights that you protect in the Constitution are those that are stated in the text, part of the original meaning, where there's a long, unbroken historical tradition. Marriage equality wouldn't fit into those categories. That's why I think Congress wants to pass this bill now. So I'm reading, I'm trying to find an example, something that, uh, you know, conservatives are worried about from a religious freedom standpoint. The Daily Signal, uh, which is a publication produced by the Heritage Foundation or in partnership with the Heritage Foundation, interviewed a Catholic um, director of a Catholic college who said, well, what if our college refuses to allow a same-sex married couple to live um, in, for instance, graduate student housing for family and would be worried that they'd be subject to new litigation under, under this exact law? This bill would not be a basis for such litigation. There might be other laws that provide a basis for litigation. Remember what this bill does say, for all of the federal laws, and there's hundreds, maybe thousands, that give a benefit to married couples but not to unmarried individuals, same-sex married couples get those benefits as well. And it says that if one state recognizes a marriage as valid, other states have to recognize that same-sex marriage as well. But it doesn't provide any basis for suing the college with regard to who it does or doesn't rent space to. I have to emphasize, though, there are other laws that might provide a basis for such a suit. I guess it's a little difficult to understand why why that wouldn't be a legal hook for someone who is in a same-sex marriage at a, at, a, at a, let's say, religious institution, a Catholic college. You know, why wouldn't they be able to sue uh, on the basis of this federal law that they're being discriminated against? And isn't it the case that not having federal protection, not, not being a member of a class that is federally recognized in the past has prevented people from bringing exactly these kinds of suits because they don't fit into any one of the neat um, kind of uh, equal, equal protection ca- categories? It's important to draw a distinction between a federal law that governs how the federal government operates versus a federal law that regulates private entities. I see. This bill would say that the federal government, when it decides whether somebody's a married couple for purpose of income tax, has mm-hmm. to treat a same-sex couple the same way. There are many federal laws that regulate private behavior, such as laws that prohibit employment discrimination by private employers. This bill isn't of that sort. 
And the fact that the college potentially taking federal dollars for funding wouldn't have any implications? By itself, this bill would not, but there's another law that already would, because this bill doesn't regulate private colleges, but Title IX of the Civil Rights Act says that educational institutions that receive federal funds can't discriminate on the basis of sex. And the Supreme Court has said that a prohibition of sex discrimination includes a prohibition of discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. Title IX might already prevent that college from discriminating. But this bill is about how the federal government itself operates. I mean, the, the vast expansion of the interpretation of Title IX, which you know originally had to do with making sure women had access to the same sports teams or clubs, et cetera, into sexual activity, into due process, into um, free, free speech concerns. I, I mean, the, the way that has happened over the years is probably what some conservatives who object to this bill exactly have in mind, worrying that down the line this will be a, a you know, a gay cake-baking situation. But, uh, but, I disagree uh, with your premise, if I may. I don't think that Title IX was ever meant just about equalizing funding for girls and women's sports, though that was an important effect of the law. Title IX is much broader than that. It says educational institutions that receive federal funds can't discriminate based on sex. And I think it was always meant to include athletics, but always meant to be about much more than that. Hmm. I mean, it, well, okay, we, we have to go. I, I disagree, but we'll, we'd love to have you back to discuss that, uh, that more at a future date. Thank you so much for uh, joining us, Erwin Chemerinsky. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Take care, everybody.